ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hi there, welcome to The Minefield. We try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life on this show. Every now and again, we come across a show where we go, well, really, we just should not do this show. And then we go, but really, we must do this show. I think this falls into that sort of category. I hope it goes well. Willie <laughs> is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Must we, Scott? Uh, yes, we must. Um, I took a little bit of convincing not because of the importance of the topic. The importance of the topic is undeniable. Not because it's not pertinent. The pertinence of the topic is undeniable. My concern is saturation, the fact that the topic is everywhere at the moment. I've got within deep, certain circles. Within certain circles. Yeah, 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 but yeah, true. Like everything, I guess. Yeah. One of the frustrations that I have in one of my jobs with the ABC is a lot of public platforms become spaces where people who don't want to have conversations with other people have conversations by publishing monologues effectively. Yep. So I don't want to talk to this other person, therefore I'm going to have a, effectively a one-way address. Yep. I'm not sure that that's either democratic or deliberative. <laughs> I worry constantly about, can I just put it this way, the media being part of the problem when it comes to real democratic conversation. I don't say democratic deliberation. I think democratic deliberation is a different thing. But I think the rigors, the demands of democratic conversation where a human being is fully, wholly, morally present to another human being, that is the condition of possibility of democratic life. It's the condition of possibility, I would say, of the moral life generally. And insofar as democracies have some claim to being morally grounded or having moral uh, principles at its foundation, I think there have to be practices of rigorous conversation. I worry then when what should be conversation makes its way into the ether, which you and I are talking in now, uh, whether that doesn't in fact do more harm than good. So there was something you said to me years ago, Honest to God, uh -oh. there would not be a week that goes by that I don't think about it. Uh, I won't mention the particular circumstances, but you found yourself, and this is how you explained it to me, you found yourself in the middle of two sides of a, of a debate. In other words, you were the object <laughs> or you were the mm -hmm. subject, you were the thing being debated. Yeah. And I remember Anything you- Anything but the object. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yes, yes, you were the subject, yeah. And I remember you saying to me, I feel like I'm the dish in the middle of the table and one side says they like it and the other side says they don't. And then you just said exasperatedly, I just don't want to be the dish. Ooh. And I worry sometimes that joining in conversations about for and against these sorts of conversations being part of the problem. So this is exactly my concern. So for the listener who hasn't intuited this already, we're talking about what you might, what we call this, the Stan Grant stepping down saga. Saga's probably too loaded a word. Well, can I just say briefly, what this is for me is that Stan Grant, having uh, announced in a, an extraordinarily written piece published by the ABC on a Friday, on the following Monday, delivered a monologue a brief monologue, uh, just over three minutes, in which he gave a further reason for his decision to step down. And I'll, I'll, I'll let you explain the stepping down part of it. But what he said was something of such moral seriousness, of such arresting insight, and the language was such that he used that, to be perfectly frank, Willie, it stopped me in my tracks. Uh, it made me... You know, Simone Weil's got that phrase, the interval of hesitation, where you, mm. you stop before something that is damn near sacred. There was something so profound about what Stan said that my first instinct was, there's nothing to be said about this. One simply has to pause, almost reverentially, to pause and wait and to allow this thing to percolate. Right. Cue reams of commentary. Yeah. Including, including this. But the point I wanted to make is my hesitation in doing this is I 
having been obviously not in Stan's position, but in, let's just say, positions that are very similar. Yeah. Quite a lot. Don't want to talk about Stan because I know, at least if he's anything like me, that's the last thing he would want. Exactly. <laughs> it's not fair on him. Exactly. And it kind of defeats the purpose because very often what ends up happening is you just, I guess the meal thing explains it, you just end up conscripted into people's own agendas. And I want to try to discuss this without it being about personalities or anything like that and in a way that doesn't merely conscript into an agenda. And maybe that's a good place to start because Mm. it seems to me if I were to stand back and survey the response to all this, you could sketch out, I don't know, maybe four broad reactions uh, I just picked a number and now I'm going to have to populate. <laughs> I was about um, to say, these are the Walid taxonomies that I've come to love because you just launch into them without any forethought. Knowing and, where they'll be. And then I find yeah. them inspired after the fact. Anyway, go on. Well, please. let's not speak too soon. Okay. Um, so I th- let's say group number one would be the problem of race in Australia. Yeah. So... It's all about racist backlash, racist abuse, et cetera, but this sort of vitriol that comes. I, I think I'm going to resist. I think what a lot of people want is for me to show my wounds here, right? mm. and I'm, I think I'm going to resist that just because I don't think the right response to this is to take something that's being discussed in the way it is now and then try to make it about me. <laughs> so I just think that's, a, that's not the way to do it. But all I will say is you want stories, I can give you stories. And I'll kind of leave it at that mm. unless I'm forced to say more. Um, so th- I think that's one response. There's another response that goes something like, this is about the impossibility of being non-white slash indigenous slash however you want to categorize it. Uh, of, of diverse background is the kind of accepted. Yeah, I don't like that no, phrase, I though, because I think it captures far too... Weirdly, it flattens too many yes, years out. I think that's exactly um, right. Yeah. But, but this is the problem of being whatever in the ABC, hmm. in an organisation like the ABC, to do with the support that management gives you. Um, and it's not racism in Australian society per se, although that's obviously part of it. It's the race, the institutional racism that exists in an institution like the ABC. That's another reaction and another what you might call um, analytical school or stream. Yeah. And, and part of that, if I can say, would be, so we have certain representatives that give a diverse face to the ABC, but then one of the critiques that there's been is the further you go up, the further you go in, the less diverse it tends to be. But also, which of course is true, but... Uh, also that, therefore, the determination to stand up and fight for one's own staff seems only to apply to certain people and not to others. Mm, there you go. Right? Would that be... You've seen that line of argument? Yes, I have. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Then there's the other, uh, another which is, this is all about the ABC's terrible judgment. Why would it think this is appropriate? And this here I'm talking about particularly the coronation special. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pre-coronation special, that definitely is not the beginning of this story, but is perhaps the the or the event that has led to this combination. And so it's about editorial failure at the ABC and accusations of um, left-wing, particularly left-wing and anti-monarchist bias and so on. That's another stream. And then there's another stream, which is this is about the ABC losing its way in what it asks slash permits its people to do, and that is particularly the conflation of uh, news coverage, what do you want to say, neutral broadcasting? Anyway, the conflation of that with opinion analysis, personality-driven stuff, Mm -hmm. the increasing personalification of ABC people and the sort of bleeding of roles, so um, the end of silos and so on. Are you happy with that taxonomy? Are there other ones, other broad responses that I've... Oh, sorry, another one, which maybe, you know, you could subsume. This is really all about the toxic culture of News Corp. Hmm. 
And I'm seeing this thing happening right now in certain parts of the media. I have to say, frankly, uh, I'll be less frank because I like to be measured. Um, it's unedifying. Yeah. Where there are arguments now going back and forth about precisely how many articles were written in what outlets about the coronation. Hmm. How many times did the name appeared on how many articles? Did the oh, image I mean, the- and I know there's like <laughs> every participant in that I think is just doing something silly. I won't put it stronger than that. No, that's good. So that's another narrative, right? Now, what what I find interesting about all these narratives is I think each one of them in isolation on their own terms is true or at the very least true enough to give a serious pause for thought. Mm. Right? That's not me saying they are all equally powerful or that um, they would all be equally prime. But I also want to get to a point eventually, if I can do it, to say that the question of which is most prime is actually the problem. Hmm. So what's happening here, as I stand back and look at the reaction, is everyone is reaching, I think in the end, for the narrative that does not implicate them. It's the narrative that says, here is the real problem, and here I shall point outwards at it. Right? Mm. Do you see what I mean? I do. It is not that you are pointing outwards at something that isn't true. You are pointing outwards at something that is true, very often serious, uh, that should be taken seriously, to whatever degree. It's not that I dispute your analysis. What concerns me is that that seems to be the only move that people want to make. And that's why I found it so arresting to hear the way that Stan Grant put it in his final monologue. And the phrase, (laughs) it's got a little bit of attention, but I think he was gesturing, and I did think this, by the way, from the moment that the news broke. I thought this all the way through. I thought, I think he's gesturing at this as a real problem, mm. right? But no one seems to be latching onto this, right? And then I thought, it, maybe that's me. Maybe I was being idiosyncratic. But then, then then he said this, and I thought, nah, I think he's made it actually clear. And we don't often play audio on this show, but I think this is worth hearing because it's better it comes from him than me. Here's Stan Grant. Yinjamara Winangana means to live with respect in a world worth living in. And we in the media must ask if we are truly honouring a world worth living in. Too often, we are the poison in the bloodstream of our society. I fear the media does not have the love or the language to speak to the gentle spirits of our land. I'm not walking away for a while because of racism. We get that far too often. I'm not walking away because of social media hatred. I need a break from the media. I feel like I'm part of the problem. And I need to ask myself how or if we can do it better. Hmm. Yeah. So Q pieces saying, no, it stands not part of the problem, it's elsewhere, etc. And maybe that's Stan being magnanimous and whatever. And like I say, I'm trying as hard as I can not to talk about Stan because, as I say, from experience, I don't think that's what he'd want us to do. Hmm. And I think it's fair to do. My question is, no my, no, my observation is, that move that he's made there, I ask myself, am I part of the problem? As a person sitting within the media landscape, who, therefore, that, that's his slice of this world. Right? That, that's, if this is the ecosystem that we're in that has precipitated this, mm. this outcome, That's the bit of the ecosystem that he's in, right? Or at least one of the bits. And his move is to say, I think there's a problem with my bit and there might be a problem with me and I might be part of the problem as being part of that, as a member of that part of the ecosystem. That's the move that's missing. That's the move that no one seems especially keen on interrogating. Yeah. I get why. Because 
people say, no, there are real and urgent problems that are not that that need to be addressed. So I get that. I get that that's part of the, yeah, I understand that. And it's not that that's wrong. But the problem is encompassing. If that's everyone's reaction, and it seems to be, I'm being a bit crude there, there'll be exceptions, but in the main, if that's everyone's reaction, then what happens is the same ecosystem breakdown over and over and over and over again. That's right. And so my feeling, and I've thought this from the beginning, so this is not a, you know, all I'm trying to convey is this is a genuine response and it's not a, you know, post hoc construction of whatever. My feeling is the question that Stan's asking himself there is actually the question everyone needs to be asking. Even those who consider themselves as enlightened and on the right side of every single debate that's connected to this, or consider themselves being the vanguards for, you know, the rectification of something, whether it be the editorial bias of the ABC or the eradication of racism in Australia, whatever. That's the question everyone actually needs to be asking. Because what Stan is describing, it seems to me, and I would welcome him to correct me, and then we would have a discussion about it, but what he's describing here is not a singular problem that needs to be rooted out, although he does specify the media. What he's identifying, and I know you'll be sympathetic to this, Scott, is an overarching condition. Mm-hmm. What he's identifying is an utterly broken way of us going about doing all this. And it precipitates all kinds of, I don't know what you want to call them, victims, casualties, injustices, and so on. And they look like different things. At times, and for obvious reasons, they look like racial abuse. At times, they look like the kind of mental disintegration of people who have public roles maybe along gendered lines, sometimes along political lines. It is not for nothing, by the way, I think we should observe this, that Q&A as a show particularly has now seen, what, the last two hosts yes, that's right. walk away. That's right. In a, I don't know, in a state that I think I could fairly, without you know, just relying on public information, describe as some form of trauma. Mm. Yes. In other words, the problem's baked in and it has mutual contributions from mutual actors. Our determination to turn around and try to identify the bad actors, point the finger at the bad actors, say they're the problem, this is the, you know, the element in Australia that needs to be excised and all will be well, that to me feels like such a misdiagnosis, even if it's built on several correct diagnoses Mm. along the way. Mm. Such a fundamental misdiagnosis or or important, profound misdiagnosis of what's being described here. And yet the very fact that that's exactly how we've responded shows, I think, A, the intractability of the problem and the insight that that response on Monday night offered and what it was gesturing towards. I think that's the best I can do it up front. Wow. Um, I, I can be more specific, you know, and I can go into some of the details about yeah. the, particularly the media stuff and whatever, but that's the broad sketch I want to provide. Look, let me just try to add, I mean, it's not going to surprise you or anybody listening to this that I'm in not just broad, but very, very deep agreement. Um, I've been thinking a lot about what Stan said and about the importance of that not being co-opted into a particular agenda or a particular diagnosis that does the dirt, I think, on what it is he asked us to take seriously. I've been doing a bit of work lately on the French author, activist, journalist, playwright, Nobel Prize winner, Albert Camus. I was arrested and somewhat stunned by a series of pieces that he wrote between 1946, so a year after the end of the Second World War, uh, and 1949. One of these pieces that he wrote uh, we use for the epigraph of our quarterly essay uh, on civil wars. But that's not the one that I wanted to make mention of. 
uh, Albert Camus, and remember, for a great deal of his life, he was a journalist uh, and he was editor-in-chief of the French resistance newspaper Combat. Um, one of the things that he lamented as a kind of hangover malaise of the Second World War is what he described as the emergence of a time of an era dominated by two things. One was abstraction and the other was automation. Uh, um, so automation, he classified that as you know, everything from bureaucracy to factory to you know, huge printing presses, uh, essentially uh, depersonalized modes of human interaction and forms of human communication. Then he described abstraction, abstraction as the overweening dominating presence of ideologies, of huge capital C causes that people enlist themselves in, that people become, as he put it, almost religious devotees to. And he says, one of the problems with abstractions is they come between human beings. So you no longer see human beings as human beings, but you see them instead as bearers of an ideology, as what he described at one point as representatives of an ideology. Avatars. I think in our age, avatars. As avatars. That's exactly right. In other words, this isn't a real person. This is someone who bears a line of argument that I would, you know, go to the ditch opposing. Um, and he says, in that kind of environment where the thing that is always in between us is abstraction, is ideology, is causes that we line up for and causes against which we array ourselves. He says, two things die. He says, one of the things, and I mean, to put not too fine a point on it, he says, the long dialogue among human beings has come to an end. And he says that the sign of that is this. He says, we once, and he's referring there to his generation of sort of idealistic youth. He says, we once believed that if we spoke the language of humanity, that that language would appeal to the humanity in our interlocutors. And that if we try to persuade people that lying and torture and extermination and deportation and murder and deceit and theft, if we try to persuade another human being that these things are defilements of all that is sacred in another human being, we thought that if we spoke the language of humanity, that what was human in our interlocutor would come and join us in this middle ground. He said, instead, we discovered, and this is the most chilling line we'll read, there is no persuading an abstraction. Mm. Um, a few years after he wrote that, and I just, I just want to read this brief thing. This is from 1949. It's a, from a speech that he delivered calls The Time of Murderers. 1949 will lead. Day and night, this is Albert Camus. Day and night, thousands of voices, each pursuing from its own corner a noisy monologue, unleash on our peoples a torrent of mystifying words. But what is the mechanism of polemic? It consists in viewing the opponent as the enemy, consequently simplifying him and refusing to see him. When I insult a person, I no longer know the color of his gaze. Thanks to polemic, we no longer live in a world of men, but in a world of shapes, avatars. Mm. What struck me, Waleed, there were two moments in what Stan said. Again, it just, it stunned me. One was his plea, his appeal. I've tried to represent my people. But try as I might, I have failed. I've, I need to step back. I've elicited the hate of others. So an attempt at representation was greeted by a kind of simplification of him as a mere representative of an ideology. Hence, and not, not even just an ideology, by the way. No, that's right. But, yeah, that's right. But then the other thing, there are two moments in what he says where he talks about hurt. Sometimes he opens with our souls are hurting and we need to step back. He also addresses those who have poured out scorn upon him saying, if your aim was to hurt me, you succeeded. He also talks in the language of love. I fear the media does not have the love or the language to speak to the gentle spirits of our land. That's the, that's the bit. It is. So what it seems to me is going on there, you know, I, there is a language that we've come to use in public discourse, 
uh, I, I would like to believe, I still deep down do believe, that the media can play a beneficial and ethically rich role in turning the hearts of people towards one another, of encouraging forms of mutual understanding, of allowing people to be seen as proper, as worthy objects of love and not just as avatars, uh, embodiments of a particular ideology or a particular cause that needs to be defeated or put back, put back in its place. But the problem is the language that we use because the language that works increasingly in our modes of public communication, the communicative spaces in between us, the language that tends to dominate, is not the language of love. And it's not the language that Camus describes as the language of humanity. In other words, the type of language where one person can say to another person, can't you see that what you are saying hurts me? Can't you see the effect that what it is that you say, this piece that you publish, can't you see the effect that this has on other people? One of the most powerful and unshakable moments of the last 10 years for me, Waleed, was sitting in a consultation that I was invited to participate in. And in that consultation were a number of extraordinary uh, Muslim activists, community organizers, uh, leaders, sitting side by side with a number of journalists from various outlets who had published various things in the decade and a half uh, following 9-11. And at one point, one of the participants in that room saying to one of the journalists in that room, let me tell you what happened to me and my daughter three days after you published that piece. That is the language of humanity saying to another human being, you may think that this is good content. You may think that these words are just the thing in order to rile up the base or to marshal people onto your side. But here's where the words cut. Here's where they hurt. Here is the human cost of, quote unquote, good content. And it just strikes me that the way that we then, you know, in this world of avatars and abstractions, the way that we carry out our forms of communication in the form of what Camus calls the noisy monologues from the various corners of our world, uh, filling this world with a torrent of polemic rather than conversation, is that we've, we've then come to think that this is the morally serious way of talking. Yep. That this is what someone who is enlisted in a particular cause and is committed to the cause of capital J justice or whatever, the preservation of what really values, this is how we speak. This is what and it, that's how everybody speaks now. Yeah. That, that's the thing. Yeah. So, I mean, I want, we need to get to our guest. I don't yes. mean to interrupt. But the thing I found most telling about the response to all this is that it's the bit where Stan starts to talk about the media not just social media, but I don't think you can really in the end talk about the media without talking about the way in which it's organising principles and the set of values that it applies. And this is probably true across the board now with all kinds of media outlets, mm. the way it has metastasized with social media, the interrelationship between the two and what you might call the grammar or the currency even of its attempts to compete in the attention economy. Yes. Well, I mean, so social media is our physical paper and trucks. Uh, social media mm. is the mode of distribution, which means that the media has to follow its logic. Right. And what's interesting to me so far in all the response, I mentioned a bunch of different streams of analysis that have attached to this. That's the one I haven't seen. Maybe I missed it. But even if I did miss it, it's obviously not voluminous enough for me to see, right? As I'm seeing others. That's the one that won't be spoken about. Why? I suspect it's because the conversation is being prosecuted in, the media. in those institutions that become complicit. We in the media, he says, must ask if we are truly honoring a world worth living in. I'll tell you now, Walid, that could have been written in 1946 and could have been in the mouth of Albert Camus. That's not to diminish what Stan says. That's to elevate what he said mm. to an almost universal maximum that ought to stop us in our tracks. Scott, we have a guest. Our guest is someone that Waleed and I both revere, and I'm dying to hear what she has to say. Margaret Simons is a journalist, a writer, an academic. She's the author of biographies of Tanya Plibersek, Penny Wong, and Carrie Stokes. She's contributed, it seems to me, arresting essays on the role of the media in our common life. And she's someone that, uh, when Waleed and I were talking about doing the show, well, it was only Margaret. Thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So take it away, Margaret. Where do you want to go? Well, obviously, I've been listening to what you two have been saying. There's one phrase in what Waleed said that 
struck, strikes me. Um, you talked about having us having an utterly broken way of, quote, doing all this, close quotes. And I guess, you know, uh, listening to that, I was thinking, well, what do you mean doing all this? Because I think that is one of the differences between now and 1946. The media is totally different from in 1946. Social media is part of that, but not all of it. You know, the ubiquity of broadcasting, for example, and, and television is different from 1946. The boundaries between what I suspect Stan means when he talks about we in the media and everyone else are much more fluid. And there's yep. there's good things and bad things to that. So when Waleed talks about doing all this, I take you to mean the public conversation, discussing issues that include racism, that include the role of news corporation in uh, society, that include the appropriate role for the ABC. Now, once upon a time, if those issues were discussed at all, certainly in 1946, it might have been in a town hall meeting. It might have been on a letters to the editor page. And there would have been a smaller number of participants in the conversation. Fair bet that most of them would have been white men. These days, the conversation is different. It's faster. You have many participants in it who might be described as bad actors or simply not participating for sincere reasons. And so when somebody like Stan uses a phrase like, phrase like we in the media, one of the things I want to ask him is, well, who do you actually mean it? Because it does seem to me, even though I take Waleed's point about how these things are intersecting and how it's not necessarily helpful to simply try and prosecute a single argument in what's a, a really complicated and important cultural moment, nor should we shy away from saying things like, institutions are inevitably racist because of issues of history and their impact on the present. We should not shy away from talking about the role of an organisation such as News Corporation, not only in Australia and worldwide. And there is a difference between the ABC and News Corporation. And, you know, I don't want to sort of airbrush that out by also saying this is a complicated cultural moment and we are all complicit in all aspects of that cultural moment. Yeah, so, you know, that probably sounds a little bit confused, but part of the change between now and 1946 is that the public conversation is much more mediatized than it was then, and social media is an important part of that. I disagree a bit with Wally when he says it is the method of distribution, uh, because it's one of the methods of distribution, I would say, not the only one. I'm not but sure I said it was a method of distribution, but my, that was my me, concern, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but my concern, anyway, but, sorry, go on. But yes, I think that the role of an institution such as the ABC is very different now. One of the reasons, and, you know, I, I have done a lot of thinking in recent times about the extent to which a personality such as Stan Grant is different, you know, I mean, only a, a decade or so ago, you know, we had Kerry O'Brien, for example, dominating the 7.30 report. Um, Tony Jones held the desk at Q&A. And I think we would now find it quite odd to look at an ABC which is pretending that Australia is full of sort of red-haired uh, Anglo-Celtic people. <laughs> um, so that has changed. But to expect somebody in Stan's position to behave like Kerry O'Brien or to behave like Tony Jones is kind of wrong and inherently a little bit offensive because it is different. You open the conversation to a wider array of the Australian community and it will be different. That's kind of partly the point. And that's part of what we're wrestling with, I think. So, yeah, those are some of my thoughts. I, I don't have firm points of view on any of this, but I think there are real differences between now and 1946 so that when Wally can say doing all this, he's talking about the public conversation, it's mediatised and there are many more people involved in it than once would have been the case. They're not all nice, civilised white middle-class gentlemen. Um, sorry, Wally, just before I kind of throw it over to you, if I can just clarify the point about 1946 very, very quickly. Uh, it's not some kind of retrograde, you know, what we really need is to go back to a time of sort of greater media civility or, or anything else. The issue is, is that in 1946, the stakes could hardly have been considered to be any higher. What we often hear is that, you know, well, there are just bigger questions of kind of, of justice 
that are at stake now. There's no time for civility because, you know, people are actually dying. Uh, there's violence on the street. There's violence in homes. There's um, The point is the time in which Camus was writing about the ways in which the language of humanity had been overwhelmed by certain forms of polemic and even dehumanized language, you know, torture and genocide was not just in living memory, it was less than a year old. Uh, the point is that in, in 1946, the stakes could hardly have been higher. And yet even then, he's saying, the way that we enlist ourselves in various causes and the way that we prosecute those causes as if our opponents were avatars or abstractions, this is killing, it's fundamentally destroying the conditions of speech among us whereby we can appeal to one another using language like hurt and love and dignity and forgiveness, all of which, Stan, I think is really powerfully marshaled. Yeah, now I take your point. And um, while perhaps there's differences of scale, I think the stakes are very high now as well. Of course, of course. No one you would dispute that, yeah. Yeah. One of the issues about an increasingly mediatized public sphere is that you can't draw national boundaries around it even. Now, the world is at war again. Other wars threaten. Uh, indigenous people are imprisoned and dying. Mm. Uh, colonial violence continues. You know, these are very high stakes. But we have a ongoing, often ugly, public conversation in which the boundaries between the people that Stan describes as we in the media and everyone else are very porous. And, you know, I've been arguing for some time, I think I, I might have said this on the last time I appeared on this show, that I think responsible participation in social media is actually part of good citizenship. Um, if good citizens don't participate responsibly in that part of the public sphere, then we leave it to the bad actors. And it's difficult, yeah, and it's really hard, but it, I would say it is a moral duty mm. for people of goodwill to participate. And this was my point of difference with Wally the last time you had me on. Yeah, this is the fundamental disagreement that we have. And I mean, yeah. at the risk of relitigating it all to distill it, the point I have is this is not a bad actor's problem. This is a systemic problem. Yeah, this I is agree. something that the whether you want to call it the affordances of technology or um, really what I think I mean is the values that are irrevocably embedded in it and therefore the relationship that exists between the media and social media and, you know, you're right to mention broadcast, broadcast media, other forms of digital media. That relationship is such that the values that embedded are embedded in it take us beyond a world of good actors. This can't be reformed by good actors. This has to be reformed well, by some massive rethought. I agree with you, it's systemic, but I don't think that removes the moral duty. I would say that makes it even weightier. But, um, you know, there is a combination of things that can be done. Regulation is one that is already happening in some jurisdictions and I suspect will continue to happen. Um, you know, we're in the middle of resolving these things. But, you know, I suppose partly my point is pragmatic. It's not going away. So the question is, what do we do about it? Your answer is not participating in it, and mine is participate in it and attempt to work it out and be a good actor. I agree yeah, with you, it's I'm, not I'm, only I'm, about bad actors. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm all for, if, if someone coming up with great regulation, great, I'm all for that, even as I would myself absent myself from it. The problem I have, though, with what happens when we frame it the way you do, and I accept the force in what you're saying, by the way, Margaret, I'm not you know, dismissing it, but my problem is, is in the end, everyone regards themselves as the good actor. Everyone regards themselves as the one who is doing what's necessary for the just cause and then regards those who are on the other side as the ones who are being disingenuous, as the ones who are being the bad actors and so on. You can well, see that... you know, I'm not sure that's right. I mean, I think it's an oversimplification. You know, one sure. of the points of engaging in discussion, including at this very moment and on this very show, one of the points is to find out where you're wrong. <laughs> or to find out. I um, wish that, that were one of the you... points, Margaret. I, I just see so well, little evidence of that. Why else Why else are we doing this right here and right now? You know, small shows, small audience, etc. But what is the point of doing this exercise precisely because you or I or one of our listeners may change their mind? Maybe well, not no, fundamentally, might... maybe only around the edges, um, or at least, Maybe. you know, 
think of think about something that they haven't done before. Now, you and I must both believe that that happens, or why are we wasting our time? Yeah. Well, possibly, possibly, I'm a terrible person, Margaret, and what I want is <laughs> the self-aggrandizement of a microphone, and the idea that at the end of this, I might be fated by somebody for having a particular, you know, for speaking the truth or whatever it is. In other words. There are performative aspects of this that has bedeviled media and especially broadcast media f- forever. You're right. And that's getting worse. And it's getting exponentially worse because of the what I'm talking about, the infusion of these values into the media, however you want to define it. And that is, I think, part of, you're right to say the, the border's porous, but that's part of what I think is being identified. When Stan says something like, I wonder if I'm the problem. I wonder if I'm the problem. I wonder that all the time. I wonder that daily. And I think mm. everyone should be. But yeah. I, don't, I don't know that anyone is or anyone's too strong. I don't, I don't know that that's well. the prevailing fashion because this is ultimately performative. And when that gets down to the level of the citizenry, then how can you have a public conversation that's anything but broken? How can doing but this be anything but a disaster? Well, you know, I think the thing is it's always broken and it's always not broken as well, and that was probably always the case. Um, One of the issues is, you know, how do we do what you described as doing all this in this mediatised age? But, you know, I would say questioning oneself, asking that question, am I part of the problem, is, um, is part of being a good actor. It's inherent in being a good actor, and that's not a new idea. I mean, go back to moral philosophers forever. And they have, you know, alerted us all to the um, to the necessity to be self-critical and self-questioning and open to new ideas. And it's difficult, you know, it's a discipline. And it probably is true that many people don't do it. I'm not going to join you and say nobody does it. Um, but, you know, that is an inherent part of being a good citizen and a good actor participating in a public conversation. But when you say it's fundamentally broken, yes, in places it absolutely is. But it also does move and it changes and society changes largely as a result of both public and private conversations. If you look at something like the same-sex marriage survey, for example, you know, the result of that, that shift in public opinion was partly a public conversation and partly a lot of very private conversations Mm. in a lot of homes, I suspect. Um, This is the way we move forward and it's both broken and it keeps going. And that means we must participate in this. We can't hold ourselves above and be pure. Can I just ask a question of you both? And this, I suppose, over the last few days has been at front of mind for me, in addition to the existential questions of are we part of the problem? No one, I think, is advocating. No one in their right mind would be advocating that what we need in order to stem the tide of the sloshing around of publicly aired extreme racist sentiment or just expressions of kind of banal garden variety racial contempt, um, which is sort of in many respects hardly any better. No one is advocating the adoption of a kind of monocultural face for the media in order to try to lessen the likelihood. I mean, in other words, we want people like Stan, not just because of the peerlessness and I think the moral authority of his voice. We need you, Walid. We need people like Yasmin Abdel Majid. And yet, in this type of environment, placing people at the forefront of debate in the name of quote unquote representation or diversity is almost bound to have the effect of exposing them to the kind of moral and emotional damage that you've described, Waleed, that Stan has given eloquent testimony to. So Stan mm. comes back. The ABC commits to giving him much better protection. I'm not entirely sure what that means in a time like ours. Yeah. I um, dealt with sort of analogous issues, I think, during the time I was working at University of Melbourne, mm. where every building at that time, seemed to be named after a man with an Anglo-Celtic name, you know, usually two syllables, Raymond Priestley, John Medley, um, and so on and so on. And some buildings named after people who had an association with eugenics Hmm. and such ideas. 
at the same time as the university was very actively trying to recruit more First Nations students. And that I had First Nations students in my classrooms. And, you know, this brought home to me the sort of cultural labour, if you like, the emotional labour that we often unknowingly are asking people to do when they come in as the first or the second or the third or the or part of a small cohort of um, of a part of our community that hasn't been previously present in an institution. So, you know, the first Indigenous student that I had in my class was every day that he stepped onto campus doing that emotional and cultural labour of learning how to exist and to be and to be part of things in a, an institution that was racist to its core in a way that it was largely blind to, I think. And, you know, I'm sure the same is true of the ABC because it's true of all institutions. I mean, history isn't all in the past. You know, it continues to impact the present. Sorry, can I just say, there's a certain self-evident truth to that, but it's also possible to overstate it. I think about this um, recently, was it five, six years, how many years ago? I was given an award by Liberty Victoria called the Voltaire Award, right? I want you to think about who Voltaire was and what he had to say about Islam. Mm. You may not even know, mm. but I could hardly think of someone who said more offensive stuff. Yeah. yeah. Was I doing emotional labour in well, accepting? Yes. So to a degree, you're yes. telling me I was, but I don't know that really I was. What I was doing was going. Hey, I get all that as the background. I know what they're doing. I understand the intent behind this. I will go give my speech. In fact, I think ironically, I might have looked at it recently. They've done, a whole lot of people who've gotten that award recently tended to have been like asylum seekers or something from Muslim backgrounds. Right? Um, <laughs> in other words, part of the emotional labour that I am or am not doing here has to do with the narrative that I build around it. And I just did not build that narrative around it. Because I mean, there's a certain yep. pragmatism that comes. Now, that's not me being idiosyncratic. But I, I get people have different responses, and I'm not denying people their responses. But I am a little wary of the discourse that begins with, here is a fact of what is being asked, and so on, right? I hear Scott's point, right, about the representative avatar. I know this position all too well. Mm. When I think about my experiences in that sort of position, and I think about the experience of sort of that crushing feeling of being at the centre of things. Believe me, I can tell you stories of, you know, the racial abuse. And so I, can, I could really floor you with this on air right now, but I choose not to. But I could also tell you a bunch of stories that pull in the exact opposite direction that have been just as bad, if not worse. Mm. Right? Well, maybe, and this I is mean, my objection I, I, to the sorry. partial analysis. This is my objection to the thing that says, here is the one vector through which we can understand this, and this is the one that matters, and anything else is airbrushing. I've got a problem with that because I think in the long run, whatever truth there might be in it, in the long run, I think it becomes in itself oppressive. Yeah, and I don't want to be understood as doing that. You know, when I say we should not airbrush out something such as the role of news corporation in our culture and society or such as the nature of the ABC, you know, I want to be able to talk about those things. I'm not suggesting that that's the whole narrative. It is also true that my Indigenous student went on to have a journalistic career as a result of his university education and he benefited from that. But I don't want to tell you you're doing emotional labour when you're not. Well, <laughs> you to decide that. Maybe emotional <laughs> labour is the wrong term. But you are approaching the institution of the Voltaire Prize in this case from a different position to what I would be, should anybody think you're giving it to me. Sure. I suppose what I'm alerting you to is that the relationship is different. So somebody such as Stan Grant and the other Indigenous reporters at the APC, because while he's one of the most prominent, he's certainly not the only one. Yeah. Um, approach that institution from a different position. They had a different experience. It is perhaps a more ambivalent experience. And because it is still unusual and exceptional, because it is still the case that only, you know, 10 years ago, virtually all the faces on the ABC were white, it is a, a point of difficulty and complexity. Yes. No, I agree with that. I think that's... So, you know, when Stan says he's tried to represent his people, I mean, you know, if I was on the ABC, as I have been from time to time, nobody's expecting me to represent my background. 
which is, you know, British slash Jewish. I mean, nobody expects me to do that. I don't expect myself to do that. It's a kind well, of ridiculous partly, idea. Partly that just happens automatically, <laughs> right? That's the idea. And I have no exactly. doubt that the, the sort of the multiplicity of diversity in some way reduces some of these problems, right? Because things don't become so singular. Experiences don't become universalized. Mm-hmm. You know, in some ways, the sort of planting of a flag becomes less relevant. There's so many flags. Doesn't, That's right. doesn't matter as much. Human beings don't become representatives here. Yeah, and, and yes. less avatar-like. So I get that. Exactly. And the ABC has a particular position in that, you know, this is the conservative argument that I think needs to be taken more seriously than it is being taken, which is that you're dealing not with a commercial broadcaster, you're dealing with a national broadcaster. I've been at both. I've seen the protection a commercial broadcaster gives its on-air talent, for example, and how it might be different to the ABC. But I can tell you what the difference is. The difference is for a commercial broadcaster, their on-air presenter is basically a commercial asset. And so they defend or not their commercial asset on those terms based on whether or not that's a good commercial decision. <laughs> really. I mean, you know, I hope I'm not being unfair to people. I'm not saying they don't care about people and so on, but, you know, nuts and bolts, that's what it ends up looking like. When you're at the ABC, you're dealing not with just commercial assets, you're a public asset. And so what comes along with that is certain things, circumscriptions that are expected of a public broadcaster that is simply not true of a commercial or private broadcaster that have to do with the people, not just the presenter, but the people that aren't in the room. And that includes, in this case, it might be monarchists or, you know, and for all the complaining I used to get so frustrated about, about, oh, no conservatives at the ABC and it's so left-leaning and all that sort of stuff. I'm very frustrated with all that, you know, inner city lefties while I lived out in the suburbs, right, (laughs) coming into work. For all that frustration, it's not untrue in a certain way. And the unrepresentative nature of the ABC is not merely one that is of demographics. It is one that has certain ideological bends. Until you're able to hold all these balls in the air, I think it gets very difficult to have a clear view of any of it and therefore a clear response. And because that's difficult and because we're in a rapid-fire environment and because of the relationship between the media and social media that I described and so on, the porous boundary around the media, or because of all of that, the clear view just doesn't really emerge because it's much easier, much more successful, if you like, to just fire off the missive that says, here is my partial Polaroid analysis. And we just run with our Polaroid analyses and then wonder why it all goes wrong when they clash. Well, you know, you described the public dialogue as being fundamentally broken. And and I agree with you. I said, yes, it always is. And yet it goes on. You know, to quote the great Leonard Cohen, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. you know, it is broken. We live in, in many ways, a broken world, and yet it continues. And while, you know, you're talking about people firing off sort of simplistic and self-righteous missives into the social media universe, you know, I agree with that. It's often not a helpful thing to do. And the media um, universe. And, yep. Yeah, and the media universe. But that is not the only thing that happens, of course. You know, that is one contribution to the ecosystem, which keeps moving. And, you know, what are we to do if we don't participate as best we can, as self-reflectively as we can, in that movement? We're certainly not fixing it, I think, by not participating. Mm. I think saying it goes on is a wonderful way to deliver us to the point where the show cannot go on because we're out of time. (laughs) I think it also means, Margaret, you and I have to have a coffee one day. I need your optimism to... I don't know, show me the way through it, show me the way out of it. I don't want this show to become a therapy session, but one day, if I may prevail upon you, that would be great. And in the meantime, I thank Scott for mediating this (laughs) therapy session. Uh, That is Margaret Simons, journalist, writer, academic, repeat guest on The Minefield, which, of course, is only reserved for the very best, and she is of the very best. Uh, That is it from us this week. See you soon. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.